If somebody built a too powerful AI under present conditions, I expect that every single member of the human species and all biological life on Earth dies shortly thereafter. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Chris, two episodes ago, we had our GPT-4 release episode and we talked about some pretty dark topics. We got called Luddites, haters, doomsdayers. But this week, it seems like everyone's becoming somewhat Everybody of a doomsdayer. Anybody is a doomsdayer now. We've got to stop the machine. Yeah, literally, I don't know what it is this week, but collectively, the internet or very influential people have said, uh-oh, this is out of control now. We must stop it. I like how they got Steve Wozniak on there. It's like, yeah, shut down AI. We don't need that. It's yeah. to take over the world. And so, for media. those who don't know what we're... we're talking about uh the future of life.org uh institute which i had never heard of until i saw this letter their mission is steering transformative technology towards benefiting life life and away from extreme large-scale risks and they wrote a letter <laughs> so they create the risk and now they're like oh we created all this risk we better stop it guys yeah that's what i don't really get I, I need to learn more about this organization but it says therefore we call on all ai labs to immediately pause for at least six months of training of ai systems more powerful than gpt4 this pause should be public and verifiable and include all key actors if such a pause cannot be enacted quickly government should step in and institute uh, um, how do you say that? Moratorium? Moratorium. 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 There yeah. we go. The joys of doing a podcast recording live. <laughs> but we have... Don't worry. AI will figure out the complex words for you in the future. You don't need to learn them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we've got some pretty influential signers of this letter. Um, so we've got Steve Wozniak, Elon Musk, uh, Andrew Yang. He was a sort of tech guy that ran for president at one point, I think, in 2020. Yeah, yeah I'm familiar. He worked at Google, I'm pretty sure. The other thing that I find weird about this letter, people signed it like the CEO of Stability AI. You would think he, of all people, would want things to progress. The, the only conclusion I can draw is our speculation in the past weeks about where they're at with this stuff is that they're ahead of what we're seeing. And this is why they're panicking because they're like, this is a serious thing. We actually have to do something about it. Otherwise, I mean, it just seems like odd PR to be so heavily involved in AI and then put your name to something that's like, oh, whoa, hold your horses, guys. What are we doing here? Although I do have a couple of theories about why they're doing this. The funny one uh, is, is Craig Peters, who's the CEO of Getty Images. He's like, please stop disrupting our business. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine if you're like... Google or someone like that, you'd want it to stop. But the thing for me is like six months just doesn't seem like, I mean, if you want this, I don't want this and I don't think they'll get it. But if you want it, they're saying that here's, they need six months to do the following, get regulatory authorities in place, get watermarking on AI so you can tell stuff is from AI, um, track everyone who has large computational abilities so they can know what they're doing and make sure that they're not training AIs on it and have policies for dealing with model leaks. Now, I mean, AI moves fast, but six months is not enough time to do any of that, especially the regulatory authorities. I mean, think about regulation for the internet itself. It's taken 20, 20 years or something to get it even in a place where it's decent. And even that's, you know, not homogenized. It's, it's different all around the world. It took me a while to understand if this was fake. 
when it first came out, I originally said uh, it, it didn't seem verifiable. <laughs> I'd never heard of the it source. It is close to April Fool's Day. Had it been released, say, tomorrow, you might have thought that. Yeah, that's what I don't really understand. Like, what's the... What's the objective here? Is this more people coming out and saying, influential people and people in the know with this technology coming out and saying to everyone, hey, we've got to hit the pause button here. We know more than you, but I'm just not sure how to interpret this. Yeah, but it's also like, hey, you know, everybody else pause too, please. You know, it's it's sort of weird. It's a weird, futile gesture in my opinion. I just don't see that people who are dedicating their lives and careers to this and people who believe passionately in it are just going to stop. Like, when have humans historically had new technology and then not used it? Like, when, when iron came around in the Iron Age, do you think the people were like, oh, we better not make weapons with this and defend ourselves and make better cooking implements and stuff just in case this changes society? No way. They're like, let's use this. It's fantastic. There's so many good applications for it. There's just no way people are going to stop no matter what they do here. Yeah, the whole proposition of this letter is completely laughable. I, I don't even know why certain people put their names to it. It just makes them look stupid, I think. But it, it might be just another case of everybody wanting to be seen as part of the international AI movement. And given that this is the flavor of the week that they want to be part of it, I just I just can't see this amounting to anything. I don't see how it could. And even if it did, it just means that people who are working on models outside of these sort of mainstream mass companies are going to have time to catch up. I don't... Yeah, it, we went from GPT-4 being announced to everyone being like, wow, the productivity, the use cases, the excitement, to AI is now the next nuclear weapon. Yeah. And I actually, I mean, my the skeptical side of me thinks they want to slow other people down. I don't think that the people who are signing this have any intention of slowing down themselves. I think they want to slow other people down. And I think there's a big threat by these open source models and models that are being trained on the output of the major large language models right now, because they're realizing that even without all the tech, people can train models that are almost as good or approaching as good. And I just wonder if if they're panicking that, you know, I, I say they, but, you know, like the people who are at the forefront of this stuff are worried that other people will get hold of their baby and they won't be the ones controlling it fully anymore. We talked about this last week, that, that bad actors potentially using other models to essentially harvest them. I forget the name of that technique, but uh, yeah, you essentially are, are relying on other models or other outputs. Model extraction. Model extraction, yeah. yeah. And it sounds like Google Bard got caught doing that as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Someone, I don't know how official the source was, but essentially a high note researcher who had worked for Google at one time essentially quit Google because he, he claims that they were harvesting data from ChatGPT to train Bard. Yeah. So Which it seems, why it's it seems like maybe there's a, a bit more to it, but Bill Ackman tweeted, Shutting down AI development for six months gives the bad guys six more months to catch up. Our enemies are working hard to develop their own open AI. It would have been a mistake to delay the Manhattan Project and let the Nazis catch up. I don't <laughs> think we have a choice. It's quite dramatic, but, but also tr it's also true. I mean, I agree. I, I don't think that you can, you can't, what is it? You can't put the the 
pop back in the thing. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't reverse this entropy. I mean, you talk about entropy with this stuff. You just can't take it back now. It's all out there. I mean, the volume of work on the open source models alone, you're never going to stop that. You just absolutely will not stop it. And the enthusiasm and energy behind this, you can't just tell everyone, oh, go on holidays for six months and forget about what you've been so excited about for the last year. It just doesn't make sense to me. It, it feels like with, you know, climate change and nuclear power, we have this really viable solution where you build nuclear power plants and we can get energy really clean and cheap. And yeah, there's some risk, but you learn to deal with them. Do you think that's similar to AI where it's like, by holding back and making this a big scary topic, we're going to lose all of this benefit to humanity from AI. Or no, is it I don't, super I don't serious? We're going to lose the benefit because I don't think it's going to stop. And I predicted what would happen here. If you listen back, I think it was our very first podcast. I said, we, the general public who do not have access to these inner circles, they will take this away from us. And I think this is the first step towards that. I think this is the first step towards us not having access to these large language models at scale. I think that they want the regulation because they want to do it. And you're only going to get access if you're in a very tightly approved use case or you you know someone and things like that. I don't think as they get towards the uh, general intelligence that regular people are going to have access to it for these exact reasons. I agree. I, I think that is exactly the path we're stepping towards because you see the evolution of these open source models catching up to potentially yeah. what we have now with GPT 3.5, maybe 4, which we'll touch on a bit later. And all of a sudden they're going to say, this is a security risk. How do we take them away? Yeah, yep. you're and not allowed to operate them. You're not allowed to have the computing resources capable of operating them, which is something they specifically mentioned in that letter, which means they're thinking it through. Like, how can we slow this down? How can we stop people we can't control running this stuff? I know, control the hardware. If you control the hardware, they're not going to be op able to operate it. And I think now... And this is, I was just claiming how great I am because I predicted this, but one thing I was wrong about was the importance of the open source models. I think now they're more important than anything. The training data, having access to open source models, having the ability to operate them, and then soon having the hardware to operate them before that's restricted is very, very important. So, but we're seeing models being able to be ran on MacBooks M1, M2 chips yeah. reliably and if that progresses to the point where you can run advanced models how are they going to even shut this stuff down i think and that's why they're panicking i think that's why they want a six-month break so they've got time to figure out <laughs> yeah, how to we we can't control this anymore so we need regulations yeah. so we can control everyone else and yet remember just a couple of weeks ago we were talking about how they're like oh we acknowledge all the risks but we're releasing this today Oh, we acknowledge the risk, but here's a new announcement of a new technology and a new model. And now they're like, oh, you know, we've, we probably shouldn't have done that because people can actually use that to make their own stuff that we can't control. Yeah, it makes no sense to me. Also, interestingly, with GPT-4, I know it's only been a couple of weeks now in the wild, but we're not even getting access to no. the full token sizes, the image, the image interpretation. Like, really, it's still vaporware, essentially. That's the thing. Really, as far as I can see from using it extensively over the last week is the it, ha it does have a bigger prompt size. It's 8,096 instead of 4,000 and whatever the other multiple of two is. 
Um, and that's great. Like the bigger prompt size does make a difference. GPT-4 definitely gives better results. Microsoft proved this empirically in their paper, which we'll talk about soon. But also just anecdotally for me, the GPT-4 results, despite its higher cost and despite it being a lot slower than chat GPT-3.5, um, it's it's just better. It's so much better at following instructions. It's so much better in its results. It's so much better at explaining its reasoning. So it's no doubt better, but we're not getting the full picture. That 32K prompt size thing is not to be underestimated. It's a really big deal. And I, I just can't help but think, I don't know what the reason is they haven't let it out yet, but there, there's reasons there. And I wonder if we'll even see it, honestly. Yeah, without trying to border on being a conspiracy theory podcast. We just oscillate. One <laughs> we week just- we're like super positive and like yeah. this is great. Humanity's going up. The next week we're like these bastards, they're going to kill us all. It's funny. I feel like I had that week when GPT-4 was announced where I was starting to get really fearful and lose sleep over this stuff. And then I went to pure excitement and I still feel like I'm in an excitement phase, especially with the work we do when we're not recording this podcast, starting to implement GPT-4 and seeing the success and seeing the joy it brings to people in their daily lives. Yeah. And just the delight when it solves a problem so comprehensively and you're like, how? I mean, I know, I sort of know how it did that, but it's still pretty impressive when you see it working, isn't it? Yeah, like I, I think that for me is the phase I'm currently in. And we touched on this last week, whereas if you just stay in the moment and you just work with the confines of what we have access to today, you can do some really great things with it. But you also realize the limitations, which is the thing that calms you down in the shorter term. That's right. And I think, you know, when it misunderstands your instructions, one thing they talk about in the Microsoft paper is prompt sensitivity. And I've definitely noticed that a lot in the last few weeks where you know, you want to add an extra instruction to a prompt, you know, in the instruction section of what you're telling it you want it to do. And one sentence or one word can vastly change the consistency of the output. And I think, you know, those kind of things are limitations where you know they need to be solved for this to get to the level that everyone's expecting. And I know that there's a certain talent for that with people, but I think at some point that's what the AI will handle itself is being able to better uh, handle that sort of sensitivity of prompts. Yeah, the prompting is definitely something that you you need to learn and is difficult. In the Lex Friedman interview with Sam Altman, he even admitted he's not very good at prompting and a lot of people still do single shot prompts where they like write a blog post about this and expect a good output. Yeah, But really the best use cases I've seen is when you're going back and forth and, and doing pretty strong prompts as if you were delegating to someone in a company as opposed to just writing out one sentence and expecting a magical result. Yeah, so- that's right. And that's one thing I really want to try with the larger prompt size with GPT-4 when it's available. And something I've just been, you know, thinking about, you know, with my own limited human brain is let's say you've got a 32K token prompt. And somewhere in the middle of that prompt, you have an instruction that's like really important that needs to be adhered to in order for whatever application you're trying to work. How does how does it know the relative importance of that statement out of that much context information? Surely there's an art to that. Surely there's a way you can tell it, you know, these are my non-negotiables, these are nice to haves and things like that. Or is it just good enough that it's able to take it all in at once? And, you know, in my experience with the smaller prompt size, I've definitely seen cases where it will just totally overlook explicit instructions you've given it. For application development, that 
makes it incredibly hard because if you're trying to restrict it or trying to give it essential uh, pieces of information and a lot of them, then it, it knowing that it might just miss something and it's flawed like a human also introduces a lot of risk into your application. Yeah, that's right. The other thing is when, you know, you give it a lot of context information, it's how do you emphasize the relative importance of that information? So, for example, if you can answer from this snippet, um, then do it. And if you can't, then fall back to this and fall back to this. Or, you know, maybe it's a medley of those things that is the right answer in this case. And sort of giving that weighting to the context information, I think, at least for in my experience, is something that you need to work on because, you know, what context you give it greatly influences the output, obviously, but you want to give it as much as possible, but you also don't want to overload it and, and increase the chance of a, an answer that isn't quite where you want it to be. Yeah, I, I, I think it's definitely... Um, um, like back and forth massaging technique, which is kind of hard when you're writing code to let it have a response and then sort of work with it um, in 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 the scheme of things on an output going. Yeah, back and unless forth. and I think I think this is where like if you look at the Microsoft paper, one of the things they were looking at is the they called it um, uh, GPT or uh, like you know large language models as a judge. And the idea is that what you do is you have multiple AI agents and the other ones will judge the output of each to see how well it adhered to the original problem. So essentially, rather than just having this one shot thing where you give a prompt and a context and expect an output, you then run that through a series of steps that will judge and refine that output itself to get it to where you want it to be. Just like and our th- brains do. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose like we have the two hemispheres of our brains that are assessing each other's thoughts and things like that. And, you know, you can also critically think about someone else's opinion and you know, you've got all that seven hats theory where you take all these different perspectives. And I, I think that it's going to be that not just multimodal, which will help, but also multimodal that are that are all working in unison to, to try and get a better outcome. I think it has to be that. You can't just do it in code. You can't just write code that will evaluate the output of the model because then you, you get all the drawbacks of that sort of fixed logic, which you know, you, you're unfettered by when you're using these large language models. I really want to go deeper into this conversation, but before we move on from the AI is going to kill us all topic, yeah. I did want to cover one more thing, which is this Time article by, I'm going to mispronounce this, but I'm going to try my best, um, Ellie Azer uh, Yudkowsky, who is an AI researcher and a bit of a sort of doom and gloom guy on Twitter. He's warning everyone that we're all going to die. <laughs> um, and he said about that that letter we mentioned earlier that that a lot of uh, important people have signed asking for the six month pause. He wrote a Time article saying that's not enough. And I just wanted to read out two paragraphs from that article real quick. Mm. If somebody built a too powerful AI under present conditions, I expect that every single member of the human species and all biological life on Earth dies shortly thereafter. There's no proposed plan for how we could do any such thing and survive. OpenAI's openly declared intention is to make some future AI do our AI alignment homework. Just hearing that this is the plan ought to be enough to get any sensible person to panic. The other leading AI AI lab, DeepMind, has no plan at all. And honestly, from hearing, I only was able to listen to some initial samples of it before we recorded... Lex Friedman also recently just interviewed 
Yudkowsky and I got to say this guy is like the extreme of we're all going to die uh, type scenario. It's, it's very hyperbolic. I mean, like right now, just unplug the computers, right? Like I, I see a future where AI is pervasive and everywhere, but I don't think everyone will instantly be killed. Yeah. And so I guess to round this discussion out, what what's your takeaway? Is, is AI just going to become like the next nuclear weapon that needs protections and legislation immediately or is this just going to pass and next week we'll be back on the road of using ai to improve our lives and, and i think productivity. there needs to be i think for them to take drastic action there has to be a catalyst there has to be some sort of disaster or something caused by ai for them to take serious regulatory action you know it, when you look at major regulations and how they evolved over the years it always happens after some big event and then as a reaction to that event they'll then start making those changes. I just don't see governments proactively legislating something that is still in its formative stages. I'm like I'm no expert on that stuff, definitely not, but I just think we're working at different rates of speed here. And I don't think even if they get this 6 months everyone just suddenly agreed to like pens down, let's let's stop. Stop tra- I'll, I won't train mine if you won't. Like if everyone somehow agrees to such a retarded agreement like that, then maybe, but I, I just I just don't think anything's going to change at all. I think it's a it's a furic gesture and it's meaningless. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Whether this does go down a path where politicians start to rise up and say, you know, we've got to do something here, or if nothing really changes, it does seem to me. Like- I mean, these are guys who don't even understand. Like, if you've looked at the TikTok legislation they're trying to get through, they don't even understand the basics of technology. They are not going to comprehend this. And I'm not, I'm not insulting politicians. I'm just saying that it's not their area of expertise. Their ability to understand this is going to take time. And I, I don't think they're going to understand it until they see the real world effects of it. You're just not going to be able to go on this abstract thought and go, okay, I can see the impending risk here. Let's, let's make detailed legislations that uh, choose how people apply the technology. It's just too complex. I think the, the thing that still scares me about all of this is deep down, every single person, whether it's Sam Altman at OpenAI to Elon Musk to a- a- nearly everyone involved in AI today is coming out and saying, there is a small chance, maybe 5% or a chance we won't be able to reach alignment with a sort of superhuman AI. And this thing could be a real risk to humanity. And- does seem like a lot still that we shouldn't sit around and think this through seriously or we shouldn't talk about how things could eventuate. And I don't think it's helping right now where if someone comes out and says that, the immediate reaction of most people out there uh, in this community and just people in general that are interested in AI is to slam them down and say, you hate AI, you're a Luddite, like stop you just don't want technology to progress. But I think there is some part of it, almost like when we were developing nuclear weapons to say, hang on, like maybe we should be careful how we use these. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right there. I think there's there's two two massive extremes here. One is we've got to stop everything immediately and solve this regulation thing. And the other one is don't do anything. It's not a concern. I think it's probably like I think you're getting at somewhere in the middle. Let's start having the conversations now. It'll take way longer than six months, but it's worth talking about because whether or not you believe what we have now is approaching average general intelligence or not, um, 
if it if it's going to get there at some point in the next 20 years, then we absolutely need to start the discussions now, given how slowly those processes move. So moving on to another big announcement from OpenAI that came out shortly after we recorded our podcast last week was chat GPT plugins. And for those that are not aware, these are essentially plugins that you can run in ChatGPT. Some of the examples cited were Instacart. So you could essentially work with the AI, say, come up with some recipes for this week and then ask uh, ChatGPT to go and order them in your Instacart, which is a pretty cool example. And we mentioned- They asked someone else to go and order them yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got, I've got an aside on that in a minute that you'll find hilarious. So- can you also please thank them for going and doing my groceries for me? But yeah, so essentially it can do the Instacart order thing. I think some of the next iterations, if they ever let us do the image thing, is taking a picture in your fridge and saying like, you know, what do I have versus these recipes, the rest go and shop for that. I mean, there's some pretty cool, interesting cases around that. I would say nothing groundbreaking. It does feel a little bit to me like I'm in two minds with this one part. It's like, oh, congratulations. You just invented a more advanced Amazon skill set that, you know, these have been around for quite some time with your voice assistants in your house. But then on the other hand, I'm like, this is a whole new development paradigm where uh, ChatGPT can go and figure out how APIs work, interact with them based on not code, but human instructions, which is how you code these plugins. You essentially just write instructions and documentation for your API, and then the AI just figures things out, which I think is fundamentally the biggest breakthrough and and biggest part of this news. Yeah, I agree that is the interface is the news because really you could do this anyway, right? Like you could you could hit the thing, tell it what instructions are available to it. It can output them as text and then your code can then go execute those instructions with like, you know, APIs um, and anything else you wanted it to do. So there's examples in the Microsoft paper of like, and this is even before the plugins were announced. They did it a while ago, you know, manipulating a calendar, a to-do list application, things like that. All those were already possible. What this does, it just brings it closer to the system and gives it these tools at the level where it can control it through language. So I think that's an essential step in the right direction. I don't think they've added anything that wasn't already possible. They've just made an architecture that makes it easier. The, the biggest part of this announcement that I'm trying to wrap my head around is what what does this signal from OpenAI's intentions in the future? Because we, it went from being non-profit research to having APIs to enable other people to use AI and empower everyone, as they say, to to benefit from AI, to being the fastest growing consumer app of all time with ChatGPT. And now they're, they're introducing plugins, which feels a little bit like an app store almost. So are they now pivoting and saying, okay, we're gonna go after this one app to rule them all with AI because this is the way we're being led. This is what most people are interested in. And it makes me wonder, do they just ditch the APIs in the future and say, we're just the next Google type company with services around AI? It's a really good point. I mean, it's literally like they've struck oil. There's oil spurting out of the ground and they're like, oh God, we've got to build like a factory around here to start getting this. We need trucks to get it out. We need all the things around it. And they're sort of not making it up as they go along, but they're, they're sort of realizing the implications of what they've created as they go along. And meanwhile, they're racing against everybody else who's catching up with them. So they need to do something solid that makes them different 
and and get it embedded into other products and things before everybody else can do the same thing. So I think it's partly that. I think it's a frantic, mad rush to work out who they are and what their identity is and how they end up. Yeah, that's the thing. Everyone's talking about, oh, this is as big as the iPhone app store. But to me, I'm like, this is way bigger than that. This is potentially the final app. There's no other apps because- Yeah, I mean, someone pointed out with OpenAI's embeddings for $50 million, you could basically embed the entire index of the internet and just have your own Google, um, you know, by doing that. And I mean, that's a trivial way to look at it because obviously Google does more than just that. Like they have rankings and things like that. But, you know, there's so many possibilities with the, the suite of technologies that OpenAI has that it's hard to know what to do. I mean, in a way, they might be having the same panic that we have spoken about where you get overwhelmed by all the different things you could do and so you don't know which ones to, to work on. Yeah, perhaps this is why they're picking away at, at things we understand today. Like everyone understands the concept of apps. So it's like, okay, well, we have plugins and these plugins are sort of like apps that work in ChatGPT and it means we can cooperate with all these great brands and work alongside them. But the most interesting one for me was Zapier in here, right? AI is phenomenal at automation. It can also read APIs. So if I'm Zapier and I'm Wade over at Zapier, who's the CEO there, and I'm looking at this, surely, I mean, and this is for every SaaS business, really, ChatGPT could replace it all because... It can read into APIs, it can connect things, it can automate things, it can build eventually, I'm sure in the next version, full custom blown interfaces to do tasks if that's what you want outside of a it chat interface. Can, yeah. So to me, it is truly the enterprise SaaS killer app of everything in existence because you could rebuild, uh, you know, really any app, including our app, our business today by by working with uh, ChatGPT. So, to me, this this could potentially be something that none of us can fathom. Like, the disruption here could be so foundational to just, you know, everything we take for granted today. Or it could and just yet, be a terrible I'm, plug-in store. <laughs> well, I'm reassured, at least as far as our own business goes, that we're still a couple of steps away from there just because of what we discussed earlier. It works great until it doesn't. And, and the, you know, there's some sort of disconnect and an issue and or it's slow or, you know, there's there's a lot of practical limitations that stop this universal app thing now. But I, I agree with you that that's the direction it's heading. Suddenly it's a lot easier to go to that to solve all of your problems. And I think people are discovering that with the GPT 3.5 Turbo because of its lower cost, you can start to throw problems at it you would have previously solved with code or with UI just with with using the, the chat GPT as an API. So you can do things a lot faster and cheaper. Well, maybe not cheaper, but like cheap-ish um, rather than going off and building a whole application to do it. So yeah, I, I can see that. I'm going to make a pretty profound statement now, and I think I may regret this, <laughs> but I'm going to do it right. anyway. <laughs> I think there's actually no killer AI apps outside ChatGPT. I don't think there's any other apps, which is why I think they might kill their API eventually and just go it alone, or at least, you know, people will stop using it. Here's why. Mm. Look at some of the early first movers that raised a ton of money in this space. Like, you know, trawling through your code, replaced by Microsoft Copilot um, to understand it. Like Jasper to write copy. Like, why not just go to ChatGPT and just ask it directly? 
to me, all of these wrappers on their APIs, which is essentially all they are, and we've talked about this before, where you could argue Salesforce, which is a, a CRM for those that don't know, that helps people manage customer relationships. You could argue it's a wrapper on a database, like UI on top of a database. But my feeling here is there's no killer apps. And that is a problem. Like, think about all the examples we're seeing. Like, oh, I got ChatGPT to help me do Pong. I got ChatGPT to help write better suggestions to support tickets. They're great. They're great uh, implementations of it that are helpful to people. But they're not killer apps. They're not game-changing apps like a Google coming along in history. To me, ChatGPT is the killer app. It's the only app. Well, for your prediction to be true, I think they need to add a few things. One is going to be they're going to have to settle on like a vector database and an embeddings. I mean, they've got their embeddings model now, but right now you sort of have to do it yourself. Can you explain to people who are non-technical what all this means? Just like Yeah, sure. So what embeddings are is basically where you take two pieces of text, you know, and you say... This is similar to this. They run it through, they call it a cosine algorithm. Honestly, I don't really understand it, but the output is a number which basically says how similar two pieces of text are. Then you store all of that in a vector database. And what that means is sort of like a tree where it can follow a path to work out the most similar thing fairly quickly, right? And there's various algorithms you can use for that. The one we use, for example, is one that Facebook released called FAISS. And so what you do is you get large amounts of data. So in our case, maybe like our user documentation or a website or whatever it is, you run it all through this embeddings model, right? And it stores all the numbers of different snippets of text and you pick the chunk size. So for example, you might have 2000 characters of text per chunk and it divides them up writes a score. Then what you do is then you can search that um, with with a string. So let's say you wanted to know about, I don't know, uh, the pricing of a website, for example. It'll search and find snippets relevant to the pricing. It'll then use that as context to a chat GPT query and use that in context information to answer the question. So it's like a two-step process. In fact, it could be more than two steps. You can actually run it in an iterative way um, to get an answer. So a simplistic what, way of thinking about this would be memory. Yeah, like long-term memory, exactly. And, you know, one of the things the models could do eventually is update that database themselves as a form of memory. So the example I gave earlier with Google, someone joking that you could, for $50 million, train the whole internet, they've basically calculated, you know, what is the sort of amount of text data on the internet um, could you create embeddings for all of that? Obviously, there'd be practical limitations on memory and other things. Like it's not as simple as th- they make it sound. But the idea is that even with the 32K prompt size, that isn't that much if you want to say, write an essay about the every time that you know Harry Potter was in a fight in the Harry Potter series of books. Whereas using um, using embeddings like this, you could do that because it would be able to gather up all of the different snippets, do it in an iterative process if necessary, and then use that larger prompt size on GBT to GBT4, I mean, when it comes out, to do tasks like that. So I think OpenAI is going to need their own one of those built into it um, in order to be the, the killer like app to end all apps thing. And then I think the other one is the thing they've just done, which is the plugins where it's like, okay, it's able to take actions now across all the different things because obviously without that it it can't do what you're describing but with those with those elements oh sorry and then the third one is data gathering 
right? So it can't be this universal thing if it doesn't have access to like timely information. I mean, that could also come through the plugins, let's say. Actually, what am I talking about? That's what the plugins are for too, gathering the data to build these um, vector databases of embeddings. And so, yeah, I I kind of agree with you. I, I think that Maybe that's what they're building to. It certainly is possible. But what about the next step where they, they say, okay, thanks Expedia for helping people book trips through your plugin, but we're good. We're just going to get our AI, which is closing in on AGI, to just go and read the booking systems for all of the different airlines, figure out better prices or when to book, and just completely cut these middle... Uh, middlemen businesses out from the equation. I think that could be the next step in terms of it looking at the final It just depends if they want to solve, I mean, will those be trivial problems to them at that point? Like if you've made a whole new life form, essentially, do you really give a shit about booking holidays? I don't know. I feel like there's going to be this phase over the next, and I'm, I probably will be wrong, but over the next five years where we think this race to AGI is, is going to happen really quickly. But to me, it feels like there'll be this five-year window of increased productivity, interfaces changing rapidly. Like how we interact with computers is obviously going to change rapidly or, or fairly rapidly. But I think for all those changes to occur, the AI needs to get really good at helping us build interfaces and helping us implement AI into everything in our world. If it doesn't, that will take much longer because it's, as you said, it's not that easy to work with. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, the main things in that, that Microsoft paper on GPT-4 were around using the AI to train other models. And the idea that maybe you have like these chained models that, you know, the AI is, I've mentioned this a few times before, the AI is selecting the right tool for the job in terms of models. And some people speculate because no one really knows how Um, GPT-4 works, for example, some people have uh, speculated that it is actually multiple models and there's a sort of routing process going on where it's picking the right tool for the job depending on the question, which is why sometimes you see higher latency on certain questions than, um, than others. But, you know, that's just speculation because they haven't told anyone how it works. Um, But yeah, so I think that in a way the AI may be able to help it help itself, like, you know, building those interfaces, coming up with new ways to interact with the humans that that can get it to where it needs to be. Um, And yeah, I I think that is how it gets progressively more uh, intelligent. Like the idea is that the this model has no internal motivations and goals, but it's 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 a step towards increasingly intelligent systems. Yeah, I think as you get these plugins and this memory component you're talking about, that's getting it closer to AGI. These are all just steps where the AGI eventually is like, I don't need any of these silly apps. I'll just go direct to source to help my human counterpart. So if yeah, there's some and- if there's some form of alignment there where the AI truly does help humans, that's the path it'll go where it's like, well, I don't really need any of these like middle things. I don't need any of these silly interfaces. I'll just build them on the fly and connect direct to source. So it, it does seem to me like we just can't fathom the disruption. I think your whole operating system could be AI based in the future. Yeah. And one of the one of the things related to that that is really interesting is that GPT-4 without the multimodal, so just the text-based part of it, is actually able to understand and manipulate images when working with a language like um, LaTeX, which is the way you write like mathematical formulas, PyPlot, which is a plotting library for um, 
uh, for Python. And there's this other one that's called like PicX or something like that. I wrote it down earlier. Um, maybe I didn't. Tick Z. Tick Z, if you look that up, T I K Z, um, which can draw sort of like simplistic images and shapes and things like that. Now, they basically show that GPT 4 can use a tick Z. Tick Z, sorry, I don't know. Well, a tick Z description, like text, like instructions of how to draw an image, understand what that image is so it can visualize and manipulate it. So, for example, they kept drawing unicorns, but they left the horn off, right? And they'd changed the way the unicorn was drawn using this, this visual language, right? And then the GPT-4 was able to add the horn on in the right spot, in the right color and everything. So like, how's it doing that? It's it's it's, it's visualizing just predict- from the text predicting the next word though. <laughs> it's just predicting the next word, but it's but it's able to take those instructions and understand what is needed, and also, you know, it must be in a way. I mean, maybe not in the way humans do, but it must be visualizing what that sequence of output leads to. Like, for example, it can sort of simulate executing code by reasoning its way through the execution of code. So, like, you can it can run fairly complex Python programs, even though it's it's not a computer. It's not running the code. It's just stepping it out through step-by-step logic to work out what would happen if this program was executed with this input. And it can do that visualization. So that's a long way of me coming back to your point and saying, who knows what all these plugins will do? Like once it knows it has the power to do all these extra things, like gather this information here, take this action here and see what the response is. Like, you know, a sort of experimentation stimulus response. Who knows what abilities and senses it will be able to develop out of having that extra stuff because they don't know. They didn't know when they were training it, it would be able to do this visualization stuff and be great at it. So how do you know when you give it all these extra abilities, it won't develop further abilities stacking on top of that that we can't even fathom yet? Well, interestingly, the browser plugin they took offline uh, over the the weekend, uh, just after launch, they just completely took it offline. They're not letting that many people in right now. So who knows what these plugins potentially could unleash. But I think back to your point, maybe it tells us more about how humans learn and think rather than the AI itself. You know, maybe how it's visualizing those problems uh, through interpretation of language is how we also do. There, there's nothing to I'm say. I'm increasingly of that opinion. And I, I think that's the thing. I think they really are creating an intelligence. And I think that's similar to how our intelligence works. Yeah, I think that, again, we've mentioned this show after show, but to me, it, that's what scares me the most about all of this is like, how dumb are we or how basic are we and how quickly will this supersede us? But don't worry, a six-month pause will help. Yeah, it it just seems like ill thought through. I don't know, like, a petition's the right way to go about it. I mean, I'm not experienced with this stuff, and it's also very American-centric, right? Like, all of this stuff, you know, is American, and I, I don't know. I mean, I didn't look through the signatures, I must admit. Maybe it's universal, but it seems very... Uh, they're not they're not looking at what's going on everywhere. They're just looking at what's going on in their sort of inner circle, and they're just broadcasting their their current state of thinking. Which yeah. I wonder if a strategic AI that was trying to take over the world, what actions it would take. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it like wrote I read the a, I read a bit this week about you know the AI and its powers for misinformation, and Microsoft experimented with this, and geez, it's good at misinformation. So you start to wonder, and actually, one of the sort of conspiracy theories around the AI 
is is AI being put out specifically so no one can trust anything anymore? Like, how do you know what you're you're seeing in terms of images, watching in terms of videos, or reading in terms of text is made by AI or humans? It's going to start to get to the point where it's like, well, how do I know if this is real or not? And maybe that's intentional. Well, we saw Mid Journey pull their their image creation capability because it was being used for deep fakes across the web and uh, so they just put a a stop to it because the new version 5 is so good that people were believing some of these deep fake images that were being created like the pope at burning man and all of these yeah and i think i think all of us like people who listen to this podcast people who have the ability need to start to see themselves as ai hoarders like start hoarding data start hoarding models start hoarding papers because how quickly, like we announced something one week on this podcast, then the next week you can't even get it anymore. Like I didn't have time to try that plugin you mentioned. This stuff is so fleeting and so rapidly changing. You need to get your hands on what you can because there might be stuff out there you could use later that's going to be taken away from you, never to be seen again. And it could be permanent if, you know, some of this regulation stuff comes in. You know, it's it's a really important time to be on top of this and staying on top of what's happening if you're interested and and feel like it's going to have the influence that we think it will. Over on Twitter, uh, a user by the name of Res0 was able to hack the new chat GPT API or, or plugin capability. Um, and he, he says, this morning I was hacking the new chat GPT API and found something super interesting. There are over 80 secret plugins that can be revealed by removing a specific parameter from an API call. The secret plugins include a Dan plugin, which I would love to get my hands on, <laughs> crypto prices plugin, and many more. And you can see um, if you are watching. So the OpenAI team is just sitting around trading crypto with all their amazing tech. Well, it sounds like it. It also sounds like they they have a Dan plugin, so they clearly have a sort of God mode, do whatever you want mode, which again, they're not handing over to the general public. But I mean, I think the Dan plugin, it literally like says it, a plugin that will change chat GPT's personality, which I think would be fascinating to use. So it does show that there's all of these different... Um, plugins coming along and they're unleashing all these capabilities and i mean clearly you could put in you know anything you wanted in there but the the striking thing to me was someone also got these plugins that were specifically designed for chat gpt to work easily with anthropics claude which is another chatbot which is lesser known i guess that's the thing language like, you know, language is the universal interface. I mean, that's always been the philosophy of, of Unix, right? Where you pipe one command into the other and text is the text is the interface, right? Like, because it's compatible with every program. So it kind of makes sense. If these plugins are working off the large language model's ability to understand text, the thing it's best at, that they would be universal. And then we saw the same thing using ChatGPT plugins with Llama. So these plugins, and again, not not that moti for for OpenAI either, which brings me back to the earlier point of they're becoming this mass consumer app. They're developing these plugins now, and maybe ChatGPT. I mean, GPT- they're holding on to the end of a fire hose being flung around in the air. I, I don't think they're probably in as much control of it as they thought they would be. Yeah. And the interesting thing is they themselves could technically be disrupted by these open source models fairly quickly. I guess the only unique advantage they have is how they've structured it, potentially the multimodals. 
and then their access to data. But everyone's going <laughs> to close that to, up. If you wanted to slow down the competitors, you know what you'd do? You'd try and constrain their hardware resources. You'd try and not allow them to be able to train massive models over a certain size. Like it all sort of starts to add up where this petition is is very convenient for OpenAI to sort of stop the competitors. Yeah, that's the thing it. I don't think anyone's realized is I know obviously none of them have signed it and for good reason. You wouldn't expect them to, but how do you know they're not behind it? How do you know OpenAI didn't write this and, you know, write emails to all these people to get them to sign it for this very reason? Because they want to restrict other people. You know, they want to be the ones that control this potential yeah, AGI. Yeah, and I also, I also think, like, in the open source community, the energy and excitement lately, the last couple of weeks, has definitely not been around GPT-4. I mean, a little bit, yeah, but they tend to be more on the sort of consumer application styles, like, look at what I can do with this. But the actual talk about research and experimentation and results and benchmarks and all that has been all around the open source models. It's definitely got a lot of energy behind it. And, you know, the timing sort of adds up. I think people like, listen just to this. Want- this is just a list of, of awesome decentralized large language models. You've got GPT for all, which is trained on 800,000 GPT 3.5 Turbo. Dolly, a large language model trained on the Databricks machine learning platform. Bloom Z CPP is an in- inference of Hugging Faces Bloom's models. Alpaca was spoken about before. Llama.cpp. CPP, which is Facebook's Llama in C++, and the list goes on. There's And there's also these open data source models that are a combination of all the different stuff out there that you can use to train things. So there's an absolute movement in this area of, of models that are approaching the quality of OpenAI stuff. I mean, of course, they're not as good, but geez, they're, they're decent and they're smaller. As we've discussed, people can actually run them and run them in a way that's not going to cost them $50 million to do some experimentation. Well, our, our dear friend that doesn't know he's our dear friend that we quote on this show a lot, Simon Willison, tweeted some wild speculation guy. here, but I think it might be possible to train a Llama 7B uh, size model for 85000 now and maybe run that model directly in your web browser with more capabilities than ChatGPT through hooking up extra tools to it, like Bing. So this idea of yeah, plugins can then be brought to your own model. And 85,000 is a lot cheaper than 10 billion. That's right. And also, you know, all of this leaves out fine tuning and customizing it to the specific problem you're trying to solve. You know, like in those cases, the smaller models often work better anyway, if you're trying to customize them for a specific task. Maybe not everyone is, but, you know, when you're training it yourself, you've got those advantages. So perhaps it's not one app to rule them all. Perhaps it's like literally a lot of AI models getting more and more sophisticated competing and it's literally and I think that's evolution. Where, yeah, like the plugins and the tools and the tool stacking. I'm actually thinking about this as we're going on with this podcast is I think letting the AI know, hey, these are the things at your disposal. Because one of the things that Microsoft went through in their paper is they gave it like real life problems to solve. So they had it as like almost like a marriage counselor and it would say, you know, this person saying this, this person saying this, this person saying this. What do you reckon's going on here? And they're like, oh, this person seems to be talking past this person. They need to listen more. They need to do this, like a pseudo psychologist. And then they gave it things like, oh, the ceiling in my roof is leaking, something I can relate to quite personally. Um, How would I solve this problem? And then it told a series of actions it would take to solve that problem, including contingencies based on what would go on. Now, you give that same reasoning logic the tools to actually do that, like the ability to make a phone call, write write an email. 
you know, check the stats on some sort of home automation system or I don't know what, but like you give it a stack of tools, suddenly it can solve real world problems. Like it really is that step towards a sort of general intelligence that has those real world actuators that we were talking about. It's coming in the form of a plugin, which sounds so simple. It's just like a browser plugin, but giving it these abilities and it having knowledge of the capabilities of those tools. I mean, it's a, it's a big step. I love, a logical step, of course. I love how large step. language model plugins may destroy humanity. I mean, that's the current <laughs> proposition. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm laughing now, and like the world will be ending, and so we just get taken down by one big app store. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> app stores uninstall. are going to destroy us. I forgot my password. <laughs> Steve Jobs <laughs> knew all me. along. Uh, so. The one thing I I really wanted to touch on, and I, I think we've we've seen some of the limitations, or at least talked about the limitations. Um, but Audrey Kapathi, who who uh, started at OpenAI, went to Tesla to work on their self-driving AI, and then now is back at OpenAI, tweeted, "Good example of us not seeing Max GPT four capability yet, in my opinion. Prompt design tool use, metacognition strategies, e.g., idea of attempt, critique, retry capabilities, model, etc." are very likely to go a long way uh, in response to another tweet. But my point here is that I just don't think we as technologists and users of, of GPT-4 are even going to discover its capabilities or utilize them correctly with the way we interact with these models. It just seems like no one is really exposing their true powers yet or has any way of doing it. And we're all sort of learning as we go. But by the time we start learning a few things, the next model's out. Yeah. And, and I think it requires deep thinking and it's hard to get the time to do that, right? Because there's so many advances. You just got to keep up with the the technology that actually thinking through the implications of this is difficult. Which makes me think that the, the team at OpenAI has seen a lot more than we, the general public, have seen because they're able to have resources constantly, as they say, red teaming this model and trying to exploit it or, or do things that people might do in the real world with it that they necessarily that's don't a great, want it to that's do. That's a great inference. You're almost as smart as GPT-4. <laughs> I, um, I agree with that because you're right. They're actually sitting around and they are thinking it and they're trying it. Yeah, and we just don't, like, even when I try and push it right now, I'm still getting, like, outages where it'll stop halfway through and I'm like, can you resume that? And then it just crashes and says, start, restart the conversation. And so, I just, we're not getting the full token size, we're not getting the image uh, capabilities, and we're getting a model online that hasn't scaled very well and is slow. So, it's really hard. I honestly, most of the time when I'm trying to push it, give up because it's just so slow at responding. I'm like, oh, I don't have time for this. Yeah, and it, I agree. Model experimentation or experimenting with the model, sorry, is very time consuming. And, you know, you've got it, you've got to iterate on it, you've got to try the data. And you're also constantly wondering, like I said earlier, is this one word in my prompt throwing off the results I'm getting? You know, it definitely makes it time consuming. Maybe AI itself or someone will come up with a framework that allows you to evaluate things and, and iterate faster or get you to a better prompt faster. But I agree, it's very time consuming, which means you can't go through all the different possibilities of what you could try to solve a particular problem or even take on a big enough problem. I think you've said this on the last few podcasts. It's like with the, with the AI stuff, you've got to think more generally. You've got to think, well, why solve this specific problem when I could solve all problems of this nature? And that's just one subset of what I'm trying to do here. 
It feels like we currently communicate with these language models in Morse code and we need yeah. a video chat. Like we need video chat or something. We need a better way to communicate. And maybe that's where devices like Neuralinks come in. We put them in our brain and the AI can read our thoughts, which is a scary proposition. But I even find it just frustrating to just have to type. Like I type all day in Slack and, and very, you know, you, you're typing all day. You just get so tired of it. Well, that's why I use my voice one that I made and just talk to it. It definitely speeds things up to be able to talk to it. I mean, there's a bit of lag, obviously, but it, it's it's great because you that barrier to actually getting in there and typing all that stuff out is gone when you speak to it. One other thing I wanted to touch on today is your AI gambling experiments. I don't know how legal this is. This is probably yeah, talking about it on this podcast will get us into trouble at some point. I but- think here's, here's the logic of actually talking about it. I think the goal of this podcast was always you and I just having a conversation like we would about this stuff and we would talk about this. So I think that that reaches my definition. Hopefully and that holds not, up in court. We're not, recommending, <laughs> we're not recommending bets. We're not recommending anyone do anything, but we're just talking about what what we're trying, essentially. So do you want to give us an update on the AI gambling experiment? Yeah. So basically what I wanted to do was I like to bet on these same game multi-bets, which is basically where you bet on individual <laughs> players saying- This sounds like our first paid sponsor. Because- yeah, exactly. Oh, guys, gambling is great. You got to try it. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, say, you know, Jason Tatum to get over 25 points and get two rebounds or something like that. And you you combine all of these things and you get greater odds now obviously when you can everyone who's done basic statistics or probability knows that the more different outcomes you need to happen at the same time the far less likely it is to happen and the bookies are smart they place the odds so you're taking way more risk than you're getting in terms of reward right so they're 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 stupid bets to make because it's always the house's favor they only need one outcome to fail um, for them to win and you need them all to come true but anyway so what i did with the ai was I basically used uh, Langchain like we've discussed before and I got all of the stats for NBA and all of the stats for AFL for all the different players and how they perform as well as the team's performance, the locations, all that sort of stuff. Combine that with the, you know, the odds of a particular match, how many points are likely to be scored and things like that. And then what I did was starting it to ask it about specific outcomes for specific players. Like, will this guy get more than six rebounds in this match, right? Then I thought, well, why not combine them and say, well, what's the the likelihood of this guy getting that and this other guy getting, say, 10 rebounds or whatever in the same match? Because one player doing well might mean the other does poorly or one doing well might make it go better. There's so many possibilities to consider and I'm like, this thing has all the time in the world to sit around and think about this for me. So I started to do that. And what I discovered over time is that if you ask it the right questions based on that data, it can do even better. So for example, you could give it say five different outcomes and it'll say something like, Hey, we can never know the we can never know the future. This is this is likely to happen, but may not. And you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, I freaking know that. Um, but if you massage it, you can get it to the point where I say, If I was to take away one of these outcomes, like remove one to increase disproportionately the overall, and I use that word in in my prompt, disproportionately increase the chances of, of the whole thing succeeding, which one should I remove? And what I've started to do is use a process of elimination and have it remove the things that it thinks are the most risky. Like you're taking too much risk on this one relative to another one. So anyway, last night, placed my first bet. 
485 to 1 gets home. What? AI one from one, 100%. So got the second got the second one on today. I'll be quitting this podcast soon, by the way. <laughs> so I'll be rich or I'll be banned. AGI or, gambling. Yes. So basically this is my future is sitting around playing with an AI model to, to, to bet on sports. But look, it's fun and it's it's just meant to be fun. It's just meant to see. And look, it's a, it's a it's sample size of one. So, so I could also become a degenerate and gradually degrade over, over the course of the next few weeks. We'll see. But I'm going to keep <laughs> refining it, keep working on it. And look, honestly, it's a great way to play with the technology and see how it goes. And a lot of it is about convincing it not to just caution me on the fact that it can't tell you. <laughs> it's it's a very like high stakes experimentation with AI like this. He'll be like, I'm betting my house on this GPT-4. <laughs> you better get this right, goddammit. <sighs> I commiserate with it when I lose. It's like, what were you thinking? You should have told me that this was risky. Uh, um, so finally, I wanted to talk about a, a very highly watched interview by Sam Altman on the Lex Friedman podcast. And... My interpretation of that interview was that, you know, similar to what you said before, they've got this fire hose, they have zero ideas, like, you know, they're, they're trying to become a consumer app now with the, the plugins. But I also felt like it was like the, the overall message from Sam was, we're the best at this were the best ones to work with governments to legislate it and lock it down. And, you know, all the other people could be bad actors if they have access to this or, or get as advanced yeah. as us. But we're not going to be bad we're, because it's in our constitution. And we signed a petition. We're sort oh, of we a non-profit, but we're also a commercial entity. We're sort of in bed with Microsoft, but we're not. Uh, like, it, it sort of... There were so many contradictions in it that I found it hard to follow. I did think that he had a lot of reasonable points though and the guy must be under a tremendous amount of pressure in his role right now just getting flack and and fire from every angle just just catching up with with the people at the office each day would be stressful they're like hey we've invented the following 25 things today yeah um, gpt5 is agi what should we do <laughs> It's like, and it's inventing stuff as well. So we've got to monitor its inventions. What scared me though the most is the proposals he had in it. And he acknowledged they were pretty unrealistic, but he was talking about a US style constitution for AI globally that we all just stop and we get together like a UN summit and we say, here's the constitution. And of course, you know, certain countries are just not going to follow that, including probably the US. So the arms race, in my opinion, has just already begun. It's already going to be out of hand. This six-month stop idea is ridiculous. And maybe we should all just come out and say it. Like the first to develop AGI, it's like the first country to develop a nuclear weapon. I think that's the reality of the path we're, we're headed towards now. Yeah, certainly. Because the thing is, once you get it, it'll, it'll do stuff. You know, it'll invent things. It's, it really is more powerful than a weapon. In my opinion. But for now, we're just going to use level. it for gambling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We can still use it to like write our blog posts. <laughs> Generating. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, that does it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Again, thank you for all of the great feedback we've been receiving uh, with, with your reviews and your comments on YouTube. 
we are almost at a thousand subscribers, Chris, on YouTube, which is just mind blowing. I can't even believe people listen to this, let alone as many people as we've had I listening love, I love to the, the episodes. I, I just wanted to say I really, really like people's comments. They're they're thought provoking, they're they're interesting. And you know, we're not claiming to be experts on this stuff. I really am interested in hearing what people think, how they feel about it. Like that kind of stuff actually stimulates our own thinking about it. So it's just such a valuable thing. I love reading the comments. I also got mugs made. Now, people listening on the podcast are not going to see, but there's an official This Day in AI mug. And on the back, we have hashtag free Sydney. And so I'm going to um, give the thousandth subscriber on YouTube one of these mugs. And then I'm going to pick some random And you haven't people. even given me one. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're not getting one until they do. Uh, yeah. You've got to think of the fans first. So, so I'm going to give out some mugs. I don't know how I'll do it. I'll find a way. I apologize to people who listen on, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because I, I don't obviously know how to contact you but if you go and subscribe on youtube i'll be able to find you that way but yeah i we we do want to get these mugs out we're not going to sell anything we're not doing this to make any money we just want to uh give out some mugs so that you have the official free sydney sydney mug thanks again for listening we will see you next week i wonder if chris it'll be like a doomsday week or a a positive week who knows (laughs) exactly i'm excited i look forward to it